In today's world, driven by big data, data scientists play a critical role in helping organizations and corporations make data-driven decisions to solve complex problems. They are skilled at using scientific methods, algorithms, and tools to extract insights and knowledge from large and complex sets of data. This podcast series was made possible by a grant from Intuitive, maker of the DaVinci and Ion Surgical Robotic Systems. The Intuitive Foundation is dedicated to promoting the advancement of STEM educational programs, medical and technology research, healthcare training, and fellowship programs. Today, we are pleased to interview Dr. Leah Christian, a strategy and methodology expert. Dr. Christian directs the Methodological and Quantitative Social Sciences Departments for NORC at the University of Chicago. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Christian. How are you today? Very good. Thanks for having me. Of course. So I'm guessing that a lot of our podcast listeners are kind of wondering about what a research methodologist, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, what exactly you do. So could you start off by telling us a little bit about yourself and everything that you do? Yeah, of course. So um, currently I'm working at a nonprofit research organization, um, NORC, at the University of Chicago. And uh, we help governments, uh, nonprofits, and businesses make better decisions through data and analysis. Um, And I lead a department that focuses on designing research studies um, on a variety of topics, ranging anything from health, education, economics, etc., Um, And in in particular, we focus on the data collection approaches, the types of instruments or questions we ask, um, and the analytic and quantitative methods used for analysis. You're not the first to ask what a research methodologist is, so I'll give a little overview. Um, But it's really someone who's an expert in the techniques and approaches for conducting social science research um, and analyzing data from that research. Um, So we research and study the best ways to conduct surveys, focus groups, interviews, and a variety of other data collection um, approaches. And of course, the techniques for analyzing that data, there's been a lot of advancements in data science and other approaches for analyzing data. Um, and the current, my current role, it means I really work with our clients to help them design research um, that helps answer the questions they have, uh, including what data sources and often kind of what data sources we're going to bring together for that. Mm-hmm. Well, that is so cool. But when you tell people uh, exactly what you do, what is usually the reaction Yeah, so often it takes a little more. People are like, wait, what is that exactly that you do? So sometimes it really helps to talk about particular projects. So I can give one example of a project I'm working on right now, which is a study for the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And in it, we started interviewing folks when they were in their teen years, um, Mm -hmm. including their parents and siblings. And then we follow them throughout their life. So we actually keep interviewing them every year, a couple years. And so we can really understand um, how they progress through the labor market and all the different factors that influence their career choices and decisions. Um, And in particular, as a methodologist, we focus a lot on how do we keep participation high? It's really important that we want to follow those people and keep the, as many of those teens and, and follow them all the way through their lives. Um, so things like how do we incentivize them? How do we contact them? Yeah. Um, and how do we kind of maintain a good relationship and rapport to keep that engagement high? That is so cool. So how did you actually get into this field? Uh, like, were you interested in some of the research or data or did you just stum- stumble upon this path? 
Um, yeah, I've always been interested in um, data and research. Uh, I went. To, uh, that said, I went to graduate school for a, a kind of a emerging field at the time, which was environmental sociology oh, wow. that studies interactions between kind of societies and the natural environment. Um, and I still did some of that, but I also met um, Don Dillman, who was a very prolific kind of survey methodologist and started working as a research assistant um, for him in graduate school, along with a few other graduate students. And that really changed my focus, um, both uh, kind of fueling interest in applied research uh, and um, thinking about how I can kind of uh, use research for broader good. I was uh, glad to be open to that change, I guess I'll say, during grad school. Sometimes it's scary when you're like, wait, is this yeah. what I'm supposed to be doing? But um, it was a good move, and, and it's uh, really launched a career for me. Absolutely, yeah. Well, I know that you were talking a little bit earlier about some of the projects that you do. Are there any other uh, really interesting projects that you've worked on that kind of, I don't know, have some light attached to it when you're thinking back on them? Yeah, so um, I'll talk about one um, from the organization I worked at before, um, NORC, which is Nielsen, um, and we do uh, media research there. So we're really interested in what people watch, what they listen to, what they look at online. Um, and so there, uh, one of the studies that uh, was really interesting was designing a wearable device um, that wasn't just about kind of monitoring activity and the way we think about wearables, but um, we actually had um, sort of a way to collect codes from um, that are embedded in all the different TV programs and things that people watch and listen to. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was really fun to think about how to design something people would wear, mm -hmm. what are the barriers to people wearing it, how do you incentivize them to wear it, and of course, all the measurement aspects of is it collecting the data that we need, and at the level of kind of granularity um, to be able to uh, do the analyses. Wow. You are the recipient of the American Association for Public Research, Warren J. Matoski, Innovators Award in 2017. The award is designed to recognize accomplishments in the field of public opinion and survey research. Can you tell me more about what you did to earn such a prestigious award? Yeah, um, APOR is a really interesting organization because they um, focus a lot on public opinion and, and innovative research methods. And they started this kind of innovators award. Um, and the work that uh, really spawned our, our winning that um, was started from my graduate school work. Uh, mm -hmm. So we, um, at the time, um, it's hard to believe it feels old enough now, I guess, that uh, web surveys were just kind of in their infancy. And so mm -hmm. we were just thinking about how do we really survey people via the web and online um, and in particular, there were kind of two barriers, I'd say, that were, were really challenging. And one was that there's no, and still no, really, um, email list of like mm -hmm. everybody in the U.S. Um, and said so that you can actually sample and select from. So um, one of the things that we looked at is how can we then push people to the web from other modes or other ways? Um, and so the approach was to send people letters uh, and, and postcards via the mail and um, encourage them from there to go online. Um, um, so we'd provide the link, passwords, we'd provide some instructions on how to do it, because at that time, people yeah. were still really new even to using the internet for this type of purpose. Um, and then we followed up with other modes, because we knew not everybody had access to online. And so you really wanted to make sure you had a representative, you know, probability based sample of people in the US. And so a lot of the early work we did was with paper kind of using um, paper surveys as a follow up and increasingly also using phone in person and other modes when needed. Um, and you may remember, hopefully some of you completed your 2020 census, uh, or at least your, your parents did. And um, that was the methodology used for the 2020 census. So it's kind of been exciting to now see it being used across all these major surveys, both in the U.S. and internationally. Yeah. Well, I'm sure that there's still so many people who 
have trouble using their phones for that kind of stuff. Um, so I don't blame them. But um, in your job, uh, you have access to a lot of data. Uh, can you tell us some of the ways that this data is collected? Yeah. So one is, you know, I talked a little bit earlier about how we kind of design data and collect, you know, through surveys, focus groups, um, interviews, usability studies. And there we really um, focus on, you know, who do we want to contact? What kind of data do we want to collect? What questions do we ask? Um, what is increasingly, I'd say, used as a complement to those kind of design data sources are um, the data that's all around us. Um, I sometimes call these kind of organic data sources. Um, in essence, they're collected as we interact with organizations, the government, um, all of our devices that we mm-hmm. have. And um, so all of this kind of more passively or, or data that's collected for other means. Um, so some examples we use a lot in research, um, administrative records. So when you interact with a company or with the government, um, a lot of that data then becomes um, in administrative records that can be shared and used for for research purposes. Um, The other big ones, of course, um, anytime you interact online, there's a whole record of every website you visited, or if you're on your phone, every app. Um, And of course, all of our um, devices as well. So wearables, um, any of your smart devices at home, all of the interactions there, all of those devices are collecting data that can then be transformed and used for research. Yeah. So once this data is collected, uh, what exactly, you know, do you use that data for? Like, uh, are there any examples of how, you know, the data can be uh, can be used to help uh, improve the lives of other people? Or, like, does it help with other problems or, you know, what kind of stuff like that? Yeah. So I'll give one example from the health kind of area that, that we do research in. And there we're often combining these kind of design data sources with these more organic data sources. And some of the major kind of sources within the health field that are used are um, all of your interactions with insurance companies. There's kind of records of all of that that kind of give a, a picture of your um, interaction of care. Um, and then there's also from the providers themselves, so from a doctor or a pharmacy, um, there's you know data that's collected about all of your interactions, any you know medicines you're on, any diagnoses you have from your visits and things. And so um, in a lot of the work we do, we combine those types of data with then asking people about different things. Um, and it can give us a full picture both of, um, you know, kind of what we're seeing in terms of care, um, but also, um, you know, their experience and, and some of the challenges they have. And, and ultimately, for many of our clients, that can then translate into decisions and, you know, making improvements. Um, we know disparities in health exist a lot via race, um, you know, poverty levels. And, and so um, a lot of times we can use this data to really understand those outcomes and, and try to improve, uh, you know, working with our clients at the organization I'm at now um, uh, to really help, you know, improve and make make people's lives better and improve their healthcare access or their um, needs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what are some of the also the negatives to collecting this data? Um, I know we've all kind of heard about, you know, TikTok and uh, privacy po- policies and security risks. And there's also been many government ages, agencies uh, collecting uh, and collecting and banning it together. So what are some of the negatives to banning like stuff like that and uh, negatives to collecting data. Yeah, I think the um, in the industry we talk a lot about both data security and then also kind of privacy and consent. So mm-hmm. I'll start with data security because it's probably the the biggest concern with TikTok that many folks mm-hmm. have is. 
um, you know, in, in particular, the the parent company, ByteDance, who um, and and the employees that have access to that data. And then there's a lot of concerns um, about whether any of that data gets shared with the Chinese government, and mm-hmm. if so, how and how that can be used. And so that is really about the security of that data that's collected, who's using it, who has access to it. Um, you've probably heard um, many major corporations, I won't list them for, for fun, <laughs> but, uh, you know, have had major data breaches and, you know, both hacking and um, uh, other forms of even, you know, ransom and all of that are related to data security. Um as a sociologist and kind of a behavioral researcher, the other thing I always think about is consent. And um, so there's a lot of different ways people um, either opt in or opt out, uh, depending on the approaches of of sharing their data. And um, a lot of time, really complicated space. And so people don't really understand like how their data is used and, and ways that it even can be used. So when you want to... Um, you know, when you explain consent to them, you should try to do it in ways that are actually meaningful to people so they can actually understand what they're doing. Um, and then often there's also a lot of more opt-out policies. So you have to actively, you know, know that you need to opt out to not have your data shared. Um, so these are the kind of big, I think, big issues yeah. for the industry <laughs> is like, how are we consenting people for for use of their data? And then once we have the data, how are we protecting it and keeping people's data secure? Yeah, so we've talked a lot about websites and stuff, but moving kind of closer to the actual person, what about phones? Uh, Could you talk a little bit more about uh, the data that's collected just by our phones and how it's used? Yeah, so phones are really interesting because they're sort of like almost multiple devices in Mm -hmm. one. Um, So one, of course, is just like a computer or any other way you might interact online um, or with apps. There's, uh, you know, constantly ability to look at, um, you know, where you visit, how much time you're spending, um, whether you're clicking on certain things and kind of really tracking your movements um, through the Internet. Um, but all of our phones, um, unless they're really old, um, have sensors in them too. So you have a GPS sensor that can track your location anywhere you bring your phone. You have um, accelerometers and other sensors that can track your movements, how many steps you made, um, some of your other activity levels. And so um, phones are kind of this microcosm, I think, of all of that you know data that's kind of more typically collected online, um, and, but also all these kind of sensors that are built into it and, and other ways that... Uh, we can collect data. Yeah, I know I was shocked when I found out that I could actually ch- uh, track my steps. I was like, wow, that's kind of impressive. But yeah, so kind of shifting focus a bit, um, as a woman in the field of data science, um, have you experienced any challenges during your career? Yeah, I mean, first I'll just say, I think growing up, you like is where things started a little bit. Of mm-hmm. in, in particular, I had a dream for a while of being an engineer and was told mm-hmm. very bluntly, like, that's a really difficult field for a woman when I was mm-hmm. growing up. And are you sure you really want to do that? Yeah. Um, but I think realistically, given the age I've been at, um, a lot of what happens in the workplace is pretty subtle. Um, mm-hmm. It's certainly there, um, but it's not someone overtly saying, oh, you're a woman, you can't do this. Yeah. Um, like like maybe when I was growing up a little bit. But mm-hmm. uh, so I think one of the probably ones that is, is a constant annoyance is uh, people talking over you, um, especially men in particular. Um, and uh, so I'm constant, you know, just more times than I can count have been interrupted and, um, and even explained um, things that I'm an expert in. So people try to, you know, be like, yeah. oh, you need to understand this, even though, you know, I'm an expert and have That's, either gone to yeah, school or yeah. done, done work in that area. 
Um, you know, other things I think that that have occurred, people um, often assume you're in a more junior role, like especially as I've advanced in my career, um, people mm-hmm. assume I might be doing, um, you know, something else or, um, mm-hmm. you know, in a more junior role uh, than, than where I'm really at. Um, you're more often asked to take notes, to get coffee, to do those types of things. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, they accumulate over time. Like yeah. I say, it's it's a more subtle aspect. Um, and then uh, as I've advanced higher, you know, you, you notice that there's fewer women around you, certainly. And so kind of the scrutiny and the, the proving yourself, um, you know, definitely gets ratcheted up another level. Um, that said, I'll say, like, I've had some amazing mentors and strong female leaders in my career as well. And so I, um, it's been really great to be able to have people to talk with and and you know share those experiences, get advice on what to do, um, and uh, really also kind of see that career trajectory in mm-hmm. other women. Yeah, well, I absolutely also love seeing how things have kind of progressed too. Uh, like I know for me, for example, I'm taking you know like a couple uh, several different classes that would a long time ago not be as open to having that. So I love seeing the changes as well, but. Yeah. Uh, that seems like a really demanding job. So how do you uh, work with your work-life balance as well as also being a mother? So, Yeah, it's really hard. I think um, mm-hmm. it's always a challenge. You always don't feel like you're doing enough for work or for mm-hmm. home or exactly. for yourself. Uh, and I think, um, you know, especially when you're like uh, my daughter was young, I think, you know, I was constantly like, what am I missing? What am I, you know, not able to do? Um, Mm -hmm. Thankfully, you know, my partner has been very flexible. And so he's been able to, you know, help Mm -hmm. with a lot of things, which certainly um, at least makes the logistics a lot easier. But, uh, you know, and then I think as I've grown a little bit, um, I've also been able to remind myself that if, if I don't spend any time on myself, then I can't be a good, you know, employee or a good mother. So, um, you know, and as my daughter's gotten older, it's helped to be able to put mm-hmm. put myself, you know, out there a little bit more, especially mm-hmm. um, exercise has been a really big thing for me and being able to, it's amazing how both like impacts your physical and your mental health to be yes. able to, um, especially here in Florida, get outside, you know, yes. most days and um, get some exercise. So um, I think the hardest thing for me is I've traveled a lot throughout the years. So I haven't always lived where I've worked and, and, or just needed to travel for client meetings and things. And so I think you feel really mm-hmm. detached there. Um, but, uh, then I'm thankful for my phone, even if it's tracking me because I can have a video call with my daughter and exactly. text and at least still feel like I'm kind of, you know, catching up and, and, and things. But I think travel is one of the harder, harder aspects for sure. So what other advice or guidance would you give to young uh, girls uh, who are ready to pursue a career in the field of methodology? Yeah, so some of this is probably broad advice mm-hmm. for for girls pursuing a lot of careers. Uh, mm-hmm. But I'd say one is be open to new possibilities. So mm-hmm. throughout like my education and my career, I haven't always said this is exactly what I want to do next. And that's been what's happened. Um, and a lot of times opportunities were presented. My, the current job I'm in, somebody approached me and asked me about applying for the job and wanting to come there. So um, I say just always kind of be open to the possibilities that are presented to you. And, um, of course, think them through, see if they're right for, for the time. But um, don't it's, it's like mm-hmm. you can plan it all out, but it's not going to happen that way anyway. <laughs> So, um, you know, be open to those uh, changes along the way. Um, Mm -hmm. I think for women in particular, find a mentor or better yet, like multiple mentors. Um, And uh, I think for me, I've um, 
grown a lot through, um, you know, especially other women mentors, but just in general, people who are, you know, experts in the field, but also experts at giving you feedback and helping mm-hmm. you grow. Um, so be open to that feedback and, you know, mm-hmm. listening to it. Uh, but I think um, you're not alone out there. So having, you know, having a mentor, having other people to help guide you uh, is really important. Um, and then lastly, and I think this is really um, key for STEAM and, and research methodologist is, um, you know, it's okay to take some risks. Um, it's okay that things won't always work out as you expected. Um, we often learn the most um, when we think of something failing or something, you know, not being as successful as we would have liked. And so um, I think uh, people are always so worried about sort of the ramifications of that, but, um, you know, be open to that and really um, focus on learning and kind of how you can continuously kind of learn and try new things throughout your life uh, and, and in your career. Absolutely. Well, that was some great advice. And it has been absolutely wonderful having a chance to talk with you today. Uh, I appreciate you taking time out of your very busy schedule, as we've seen, uh, to be a guest on this podcast. So thank you. (laughs) Thank you. It's been exciting to be here today. The Women in STEAM podcast series is a student production of Shortcrest Preparatory School. Theme composed by Julia Lagakis. Artwork by Shannon Ross. Hosts Aspen Slavic Gerlach, Adelaide Oman, and Ava Peters. Sound engineering Leilani McIntyre. This podcast series was made possible by a grant from Intuitive, maker of the Da Vinci and Ion surgical robotic systems. The Intuitive Foundation is dedicated to promoting the advancement of STEM educational programs, medical and technology research, healthcare training, and fellowship programs. <music>